This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. My words about reading the Scriptures, about preaching the Scriptures, and about the mission on which the Scriptures send all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. Look here for words and listen here for words on the way to that letter glory, words to refresh and guide, to lift up and to build up, words beautiful and true, like apples of gold in a setting of silver. I'm Pastor Willie Grills here with the Reverend Zelwyn Heidi, and today we have with us Pastor David Appled of Paducah in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. How's it going, gentlemen? It's going well. It's a beautiful Commonwealth here, Willie, as you know. That's right. My native my native land. You are laboring in her. Very good. Uh, it's it's plenty cold up here, so maybe not quite so beautiful up here in North Dakota, but eh, it should be a good a good conversation nonetheless. <laughs> That's right. So today we are going to begin our discussion on anthropology, but not the anthropology you get in your typical sociology classroom. We're going to talk about biblical anthropology, how that differs from secular anthropology, and what it means for the Christian. Anthropology is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. If we don't have that right, a lot of different things go askew. So basically, anthropology is what, guys? It's the doctrine of man. What is man, man's origin, our nature, and what is our end? Guys, let's talk a little bit about the importance of anthropology for a right understanding of Christianity. David, you want to take that away? Sure. I mean, the uh, like Willie said, the you know, the basic definition, the doctrine of man uh, might leave you wanting to know a little bit more, right? Uh, but this is self-understanding. Uh, if you don't know who you are or what we are as human creatures, everything else is you're, you're starting on a total wrong foot, right? And right. everything else that's going to follow is going to be completely skewed. Uh, or or skewed even just a little bit, but even a minor skew uh, leads you into the wrong end. So we're going to define uh, anthropology from a biblical standpoint. The definitions of man, the understanding of man in the secular culture changes um, depending on which way the wind blows. Today, even the, the word man uh, is kind of a loaded term. So in biblical terms, what is man? Biblically speaking, yeah, he's a he's a creature, right? I mean, first and first and foremost, he is a creature of of God, and that's going to give him certain status. and And so, you look to the biblical record for where man comes from, uh, what God originally gives him or endows him with, and what the purpose is going to be. It's all given by the Creator. And I think if if you if you don't want to start there. Uh, you don't want to start with what the Bible says, right? Sure, sure. So why is it important to have a biblical understanding of man in uh, in relation to, as far as terminology goes, compared to what you would get in a typical sociology class? Well, if you don't have a, a proper definition of man, biblically speaking, you're not going to have a proper understanding of other important doctrines as well. Because if man is just some sort of cosmic accident or something like that, then what's the point of Christ? When we're dealing with, you know, who is man in, in relation to God, we are also dealing with, you know, who we are um, in relationship to our Savior. Well, and, and just in basic terms, the way in which the Bible defines us a thing, be it man, woman, whatever, any doctrine, is unchanging. It is not like the definitions of anything outside of the Bible. The way in which we discuss animals even is different, scientifically is different than the way we discussed them 250 years ago. Uh, medicine has certainly changed in its definition and in its application. Biblical doctrines ought not change. The only thing that really changes as far as language is concerned uh, has to do with translation. But definitions ought to remain the same because the truth of the scriptures is unchanging. If we continue to, if we define man as Christians purely in secular terms or pure, purely in uh, scientific terms, then we're not left with much because that definition can change tomorrow. I mean, we're even seeing that the distinction between male and female, that there even is a distinction, is now in question by many in popular culture. 
yet the Bible from the very beginning has said God created them male and female. That does not change. These fundamental truths of the scriptures do not change and will never change because they, they are the eternal truth of God. So we always have to go with the definition set forth by scripture over and against the definitions that the world would force upon us. And it's it's similar to what you see in, you mentioned science uh, just a minute ago, we're talking about animals, uh, but it's, it's very similar, I think, to the way that you see how uh, the world around us is described. The, the way that the world, uh, the way that you understand the world, the way that you understand yourself in the world, if you're following the, you know, the brightest lights of science, the brightest lights of uh, the soft sciences now, you're going to, you're going to be saying all kinds of different things uh, as the theories change and as the, you know, the next discoveries, quote unquote, are made. Uh, and, and you end up with, with really shaky ground. So that being said, in light of the Bible, and we'll get into this a little bit more as this, as the discussion goes on, uh, man is a creature Man is made by God. Man is not eternal. But humanity, um, specifically beginning with the first human, Adam, man, is unique above all creation. Agree or disagree? Agreed. I don't know why I'm going all McLaughlin report on you guys. but Yeah, yeah no, I, I like these. I like those questions. <laughs> True or false, right? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's certainly, certainly true. And... The discussion of man is important for all of us listening because we are all human. This discussion deals with all of us. And in particular, the will of man and the ability that man has or the capacity that man has for righteousness. Now, we're going to talk about um, all of these distinctions that we're getting ready to briefly gloss over in great detail as the podcasts go on in the future. However, first, we're just going to really lay out the basics of this. So we have man as a unique creature, and man is the object of God's salvation, right? Man is, we have man created um, in the Garden of Eden, in perfection, right? Right. Okay, then what happens? Well, then Adam falls into sin because he's not content with his uh, creatureliness. Let's be very brief. We got plenty of time to go on. So, yeah. So (laughs) Adam sins. Adam falls. What happens? Adam falls and sin is introduced into the world. And that's the heart of this discussion. Man man in the Garden of Eden, man after this fall, um, sinful man, and then man saved, man regenerated, and then man glorified. And so that brings us to the distinction that has commonly been called uh, throughout church history, uh, the fourfold distinction of man. And so let's just unpack that a little bit. When we talk about the fourfold distinction, David, what are we talking about? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's good to point out here. Uh, we started off by saying if you're, if you're basing your definition of man on the various theories that are around us, it's always going to be changing. Uh, but uh, even when we look at this fourfold distinction, we are admitting that there is, and we're recognizing that man, yes, he is a, a creature of the eternal God, um, and God's what God says about him doesn't change. But man's condition, or the the various things that are true about a, any one particular person, changes over time, right? And so, this fourfold distinction is a, is a helpful way to think about the various states that humanity has found itself in, uh, from paradise originally created to the, the post-fall condition to a man who has been converted, and then finally our glorified end in Christ. Sure. So this fourfold distinction comes from the theology of Augustine. And this is particularly Augustine uh, in reaction to the Pelagian heresy. So who wants to talk about uh, the Pelagian heresy? I don't see any hands. <laughs> you want just like basic time frames or uh, what What do you want to talk about here? Whatever you feel, the floor is yours. The mic is yours or Zelwyn, whoever wants to jump in. Well, I think we're, it'd be good to locate this in church history, right? I mean, this distinction, we would we would say this is a biblical distinction, but it doesn't really become developed until Augustine and cemented, I guess, would, would maybe be a good way to say it by Augustine. Yeah. Yeah, so you're looking at Pelagius, who's a Brit, right? British guy living uh, late 300s, early 400s. And he's, his teachings are ultimately declared heresy 
at the Council of Carthage in 418. Whatever Pelagius is teaching, which we're getting ready to reveal, it really sticks in Augustine's craw. Augustine does not does not like it. He does not affirm it. And it really sets the precedent for our understanding of man and the nature of the will and the nature of salvation um, from the 400s all the way up until today. Very influential in the history of the church. Yeah, and the debate here, uh, like we, we've mentioned will a couple of times, but this is all of these debates kind of are, are the connection between anthropology and how a person is saved is very closely connected, right? And so what can man contribute to his salvation? Does he contribute right. anything? And so what does Pelagius say or Pelagius followers? What do they say about man? Well, that man can contribute something to his salvation. Right. And, and even in more base terms, that the grace of God is not necessary for salvation. Uh, that humans are not wounded by Adam's sin, and they're perfectly able to fulfill the law of God without divine aid. Do we have any Pelagians still hanging around, Willie? Well, that's a good question. Um, that develops a little bit uh, to the semi-Pelagians uh, who want to attribute the, in, the initiation of salvation to the will of God, but the completion of salvation to the will of man. So you probably have a lot more semi-Pelagians out there. There are functional Pelagians out there. There are even there are open Pelagians. Um, brother, what is his name? Brother Jed Smock or Jed Smoot, something like that. A very famous evangelist who goes around to college campuses um, and and sort of street preaches. Uh, very much a fundamentalist guy. He is an open Pelagian. If you go to his website, he used to have articles extolling the virtues of Pelagius and Pelagianism. So an open and avowed Pelagius there, kind of a cult figure on uh, state college campuses, I guess you could say. I think today we have a lot of functional Pelagians. See, for Pelagius, man is born as kind of a blank slate. There's some potentiality for anything there, but there's no direction, inclination rather, towards evil or to good. And so through a variety of factors, that man, you know, chooses good or evil, but ultimately it's all upon upon the man. He does not need divine aid. And we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but we as Lutherans and we as biblical Christians would say that man cannot come to God apart from the grace of God. That man is born sinful, not only sinfully inclined, but guilty in a judicial sense. So guilty in a judicial sense and sinfully inclined. And because he is so sinfully inclined, he is not going to choose good. He is not going to choose faith. He is not going to exercise faith because indeed he doesn't have it. So he needs divine intervention. And since God is the primary motivator of all things, God indeed created all things or we wouldn't be here. It's the same with faith. It's the same with anyone who is saved. God initiates that. Um, God gives faith. God brings the person to faith. But more than that, we would say that every step in a person's salvation is by the grace of God and according to the will of God. Very, very different from Pelagian or from Pelagius. And yet many today would say that their salvation, while attributing it to the grace of God, would really pinpoint their salvation uh, to the moment in which they made the decision or otherwise to their striving uh, to keep the law of God. So the spirit of Pelagius is alive, even if we've forgotten his, even if we've forgotten his name in a lot of cases, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I'm in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, and so we're my members joke about being part of the Bible Belt and how we're we're uh, we don't have many Lutherans around us, and it's true. I mean, you have by and large mostly a Church of Christ, mostly Baptist uh, congregations around me, and so I don't. I don't run into anyone who claims to be a Pelagian, a Pelagian uh, but I do I do talk all the time with people who are motivated by this kind of theology. Right, and it is a, it is kind of a natural thing uh, to humans because anything in life, if you want it, you pretty much have to work for it, and it's pretty much whatever you do. I mean, a lot of people like to talk about silver spoons and that sort of thing, but everybody agrees generally. If I want a glass of water, I've got to get up, go to the sink, grab a glass, turn it on, pour the glass of water. And they really see salvation in the same way. If I want to be saved, I've got to pull myself up by my my own bootstraps, exercise my will, which is really how they view faith, an exercise of the will, a really, really, really believing hard. 
and then then I'll be saved. Or in other cases, fulfill these obligations, these laws, and thus um, be worthy of salvation. You know, depending upon who you're talking to. Yeah, and it's a great point. I mean, what could be more natural than making a choice? Right, where every <laughs> every day, almost everything that we do is a matter of me choosing. Now, I, I perform most. I, I make most of my choices without much forethought. Uh, without much decision per se, but I'm always engaged in activities of the will. We're willing creatures, and so it's a natural it's it's a natural conclusion to say it's the same way with faith. Faith is I have to make a choice right. here. Really, I have to. And, and really, before we get into this fourfold distinction, it is important to talk about what we mean by the will. And how would Zelman? How would you define the will? Uh, <laughs> that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> But, but 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 I mean, just in the in a really really basic way, not and trying to avoid theological sure. terms just yet. Well, I, I would say that the will is that that part of man that desires to do things that we have a a drive uh, that we make an active choice. Um, so I mean, you could you could just boil it down to uh, man's like you say man's drive to to choose things to to do things to get going. Exactly. And and it's often presented as a neutral kind of thing, but there is no such thing as a neutral will. And we can prove this. You know, the Bible talks about man's heart being desperately wicked. So we understand that man's heart is inclined towards evil in the worst way. But even in a, in a, in a, in a non-biblical way and using non-biblical examples, there is no such thing as a neutral will. And going all the way back to John Ed, Jonathan Edwards or whoever we want to use here, if you have a donkey and he's standing, a donkey is standing and on his left is a bushel of wheat and on his right is a bushel of oats. Now he's going to choose one of those two things based upon the inclination of his will. Even if he's hungry, okay, even if he's hungry, um, he's going to choose one of those based upon some inclination within him. If his will is neutral, he's not going to go right or to left. He'll stand there and just starve because nothing's going to be pushing him one way or the other. The donkey's going to starve even though the food is right there. Perhaps the donkey prefers oats, so he's inclined towards that. Perhaps somebody is pulling his bridle a little bit to the left, so he's going to choose the wheat. In any case, the will is not neutral, whether from internal forces or from external forces. There's always something exerting influence upon the will. Right. And I think that uh, one of the things that, that, again, if we're just looking at what we naturally think or what we naturally kind of conclude about ourselves is that, that neutrality, people always talk about, well, I, I made these choices freely, right? I, this was my free choice. And in sort of a, if, if we're not speaking, you know, precisely theologically, it's true, right? I feel like I'm making all kinds of free choices. No one is forcing me to choose to eat uh, Cheerios for breakfast, for example. Right. Um, but what you're bringing out there, Willie, is that there is an inclination, right? There's these internal things that we're not even, that we're not uh, cognizant of. We don't think about our inclinations uh, and how those are directing us to make these what we feel like are free choices. Right. Now, they are still our proper choices, um, but the term free has been so abused as to mean that it's free from influence. Um, a lot of times what we mean by free is is if we, if we define free as your responsibility or you're responsible for the choice, then we can certainly agree with that. You are ultimately responsible for the choices you make. But to say that the choices are somehow divorced from other influences is just not true. And, you know, we see it and we'll talk about it a little more when we talk about original sin and that inclination towards sin that men have after the fall. But, yeah, there's always these external factors and internal factors that point us uh, one way or the other, even though we're responsible. You know, if uh, if you're allergic to Cheerios, David, and you eat the Cheerios knowing that, it's still your fault that you I'm break out in the hives. I'm a victim. <laughs> <laughs> right. You can't you can't say it's big cereal yeah. that has uh, influenced yeah. you with their shiny yellow box. It is still you who who has uh, who has uh, done you're this. You're just to a shill, Willie. So <laughs> that's a, a corporate shill. <laughs> this broadcast brought to you by General Mills. By the way. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, all right, guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about this fourfold distinction of man and then get into man in the Garden of Eden, what life was like for man, what the internal life was like for man before the fall. We'll be back right after this. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. We're back. I'm Willie Grills with Zell and Heidi and David Apple talking about anthropology, specifically biblical anthropology. David, unpack for us this concept of the fourfold state of man from St. Augustine. Yeah, so we, we jumped in pretty quickly to a discussion of man's will and the power of, uh, to choose. And, and so when we're talking about this fourfold distinction, uh, that's really what Augustine is focusing on, is what is the difference or what are, what are the four states that the will of man is in? And so in the, in the beginning, in Eden, Adam is created with, with a will, right? He is a willing creature. Um, and so he has the will, uh, the power either not to sin or the power to sin, right? He, he can make either choice there. Um, then the second state that Augustine would delineate would be, okay, after the fall, the fall happens, the curse of God is spoken as judgment on man, and he is now, uh, he's lost the power not to sin. You get into some kind of uh, like almost like double negatives here. So I hope it's it's clear and you can stop me if it's not. But um, in the, this second state, uh, man no longer has the power not to sin. The only thing we have is the power to sin. And so like we were talking before, um, you can make lots of choices in your life apart from Christ. Um, you can make all kinds of different choices, but these are all sinful choices. Um, and so then until a person is renewed, until a person is uh, brought to faith by the Holy Spirit, that's going to be the condition of the will. Uh, so those are the first two states that a man's will could be in. And the third one comes uh, with conversion. And this is almost like a return to Eden. Uh, in conversion, man has, again, the power not to sin, even though it's weak, right? It's a it's a very weak uh, power there and still retains the power to sin. So uh, it's like a restoring of, of the uh, condition in Eden. Although I would say uh, the, <laughs> the power to sin in us is much greater than it was for Adam in the garden. Uh, and then the last one would be, what will it be uh, when Christ returns in glory, when the dead are raised and uh, believers are perfectly glorified? Well, then we will have the power not to be able to sin. All right. So there we go. Those are the four yeah, states. The, yeah. yeah, the four states, the fourfold distinction. Now, this debate was at the heart of the Reformation. And uh, Zelwyn, tell us a little bit about uh, these Reformation distinctives and why it was so important for people like Luther and the other Reformers. Luther, of course, would be uh, is famous for writing treatises on what he calls the bound will. But with the bound will, in that sense, is kind of like Augustine talking about that second state, uh, that power to sin, uh, that man has no choice but to sin. And the reason why that was so important uh, for Luther is because he was contending with opponents who were saying that, well, maybe our will is weak, but it's still there. Uh, man still had the ability to at least choose, however weakly, uh, the things of God. And so Luther was arguing, no, that's not the case. Man is not able to choose God because he is, while he is still unconverted, he is bound in his will. He's not able to do anything other than sin. Yeah, and, yes, and, and, it, and it's central to the question of justification by faith alone and by grace alone. Where is the source of our salvation? Is there any grounds on which man can boast? And for Luther, it's no, because man contributes nothing to his salvation, because man cannot 
contribute anything to his salvation because he is bound in sin. Apart from the grace of God, man can do no good thing. Apart from that regenerative work of God, man can do no good thing. Yeah, and I think the something we had talked about before, that removal of neutrality, if we can uh, if we can understand that there is not a neutral choice that we make, um, then you then you're getting to what Luther is talking about in the bound will. Well, if you're not if these are not just sort of you're in a neutral condition, uh, but if you are inclined towards sin, um, if you are limited by uh, that fallen nature, then no matter what you choose, you you might feel like you're making all kinds of choices, right? But especially in terms of choosing the things of God, like you said, Zelwyn, well, that you don't have that power. You don't have the power to choose to believe in God. And today, this this debate is still going on, not only between um, Roman Catholics and Lutherans, but from uh, what we would call the Arminian camp, or you know, really the theology that is that is now espoused by most evangelicals, which would say that salvation is the result of a free will choice that one makes. In short, a man is born with the ability uh, to choose or not to choose good or evil, and ultimately to choose God or reject God, and specifically the gospel. And so, ultimately, salvation falls upon the person to make that decision. And I'm trying to be as charitable to Arminianism as I can. They would say that, yes, that's true, but you first need some measure of God's grace. So that initial work of God's grace is to give you the capacity to make this choice. And so everybody receives that grace of God, that that initial grace is given to all men that they might choose God. And so we'll get into this in in more detail, but what does that do then for our understanding of salvation and our understanding of the will? It makes salvation merely the exercise of the will uh, in in one form or another. And that that does a terrible thing to assurance and to the conscience of the Christian. And why would that be? Well, you're, I mean, you can see this, I, you can see this in uh, your own life as well. I, I make a lot of choices that at the time seem like I'm sincere, maybe. Um, and later when I think back on it, I think, well, I wonder if I really was sincere. Did I, did I do the right thing there? Did I do it for the right reasons? And you can, you can hear this oftentimes if you, if you talk with Baptist people, um, and this is, this is the danger of that false theology is they, they don't have God-given assurance because it's, it was their choice. Sure. And, and we're seeing it in a lot of Baptists today as a result of the Second Great Awakening, as a result of revivalism. You know, initially, uh, the, the OG Baptists probably wouldn't have seen salvation that way, but, but that's a discussion for another episode. But the modern Baptist is very much embroiled in this, in this decision theology. Most of American Christianity is as a result of ultimately the first great awakening, but really more so the second great awakening. But you look at this and what is the hallmark of the second great awakening? It's these great grand revivals. And what did the revival seek to do? First, they sought to get an emotional reaction to pe- from people. And then what was the second thing they wanted? They wanted to stir up the emotions and, and then lead to what, guys? Well, to to a conversion. of More specifically, not a conversion. Well, a conversion, yes, but their word would be... Through that choice. That choice. Yeah, yes, a decision. A decision. Yeah, decisionism. And you look at these great revivals in American history, even in English history to a lesser degree, what has it given us really? Large places, or these large revivals... The places where they uh, were in the First Great Awakening, uh, they came to be called the Burned Over District, because once these revivals went through, Christianity really was popular for but a time, and then completely, you know, went away and was wiped out into this very day, and you and nobody is interested in church. And why is that? Because this theology puts such a burden upon man. The gospel is meant to be a sweet relief. Uh, the gospel is meant to be sweet. It's a sweet smelling savor, right? It, it, it is God's working in man. It is the good news of what Christ has done for you and that it has been paid for. It's all paid for. It's all done. That weight is off your shoulders. Decisionism says your salvation is dependent purely upon the will and upon that decision. 
Um, and that's what separates the sheep from the goat ultimately is that decision. And it completely uh, destroys man. And so what happens in that man makes that decision and what ultimately motivated him to make that decision? Oh, it was the stirring of his emotions. Right, right, right. It was the it was the it was the skill of the preacher in one way or the other. And I realize we're being a little bit uncharitable because they would say it was the move of the Holy Spirit and this and that. But if you go and read works by men like Finney, Finney does not hide anything. Charles Granson Finney says that he uses the techniques he learned in law school or the techniques he learned while practicing law in order to produce a an emotional reaction within these people. It's no coincidence that these law room techniques or these debate techniques are used at the same time they're using uh, music to stir people up, uh, music to get people going. And that goes right back to our original discussion about the will not being neutral. There has to be something pulling the will one way or the other. And so it can be the eloquence of the preacher in this case, or it can be the, the, the words of, of a song or even the melody. And and so these people hear this, and then they're just they're won over, but for a time, and yet they fall they fall right back. Uh, decisionism is is really rather dangerous for the Christian. One example that I can still remember uh, that might give our listeners maybe a more semi visual uh, idea of of decisionism uh, was a a ballot that <laughs> had been drawn up, and at the top of this ballot, um, you know, it said "cast your vote" or something like that. And in the first place, you have God saying, yes, for you. That's what God was saying. And in the other place, you had God saying, no, or not God. They had Satan saying, no. And then the question was, which will you choose? Which one will you choose? Are you going to vote with God or are you going to vote with Satan? <laughs> right. And it's a terrifying prospect that the devil would get a vote <laughs> in that, uh, that scheme. And yeah, that his vote yeah, was equally as powerful as God's. As gods, and then ultimately you cast the designing right. vote. So it's all upon you. You got to pull that right lever. Yeah, until the voting machine malfunctions or something. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no. But it, yeah, it's a very good illustration. But that's what we deal with here. And people, people believe this sincerely. And and ultimately, a lot of these people who believe in decision theology are not going to say that it's their fault they're in heaven or through their work or their decision that they're in heaven. And yet when pushed, they're forced to concede that point because ultimately that's the only thing that separates a believer from a non-believer is this, is this decision and which, which comes from their own free will. Now we would present this differently. How do we view salvation as, as Lutherans, as confessional Lutherans? Well, this, um, if I can put it back into this, uh, this fourfold distinction, just, that framework, I think, is helpful. The mistake there in this decisionism is is to not understand that second condition that we all, at one point in our lives, have found ourselves in, in not being able to choose for God. And so the Lutheran position is that that, that total depravity, I know that's not a, a Lutheran term that I'm using there, but the absolute fallenness of a person uh, eliminates our contribution towards it. Uh, towards our salvation, that is. And so it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit to call, gather, enlighten, sanctify, and ultimately keep us in the true faith. And that's done through through the Word and through um, certainly the sacrament of holy baptism and that sustaining uh, sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Sure. And that from first to last, it is a work of God Almighty with us. Yeah. And he's, he certainly works on our will, we wouldn't deny that. It's not like we are, that we never have a will in this and that we are completely unwilling all the way through. Uh, that would right. be awful, right? Um, that you're sa you're not saved against your will. Your will is changed. Your will is converted. Absolutely. Yeah. All things are made new, uh, beginning really with your, with your inner man and with your will. Um, although not, it's although it's not brought to completion yet. Well, I guess we could say it is completely done, but there's still that internal war that we have, which we'll get into um, a different section. We have to recognize that this issue is a perennial issue throughout church history, from really the very beginning. Paul deals with it a lot. You know, really, all the New Testament authors deal with this in one way or another, all the way to the early church with Augustine versus the Pelagians, the Reformation. And all the way up to today, it's something that we're going to have to continue to deal with until Jesus Christ returns. It's just one of those 
sticky wickets. It just can't be stamped <laughs> right, out, right? right? It, it, it rears its head in all sorts of different forms. Um, yeah, it can't be stamped out. So let's, uh, before, you know, we got a few more minutes uh, before the next break. So let's go ahead and dig into man before the fall. So pre-fall man. So first, let's talk about creation a little bit. Um, how does man come about? Where does man come from? What's the origin of man? Well, God creates all things through his word. And uh, as as he creates through his word, uh, man is the the final and the, the special uh, creation uh, created in the image of God and after his own likeness uh, so that uh, he's not an accident, but actually the, the crown of creation, if I can put it that way. David, any comments? Well, I think that uh, here, what Zelman just touched on is is good to see. There is man is part of this whole this whole um, these first six days of creation here, uh, but he's also the the pinnacle, right, coming up at the end. And there is something distinct about him. We've been talking a lot about, and, and we're just kind of assuming this, but which is I think okay, but it's good to make it clear here. Man's the fact that man is has a, a will does set him apart from, you know, your example earlier, Willie, of a donkey, right? Both are, we're both creatures, a man and a donkey are both creatures of God, but there's something special about man or uh, there's something distinct about him. And that's what we're going to be looking at in, as we look at Genesis here. Certainly. And we just want to go ahead and uh, lay this out. Uh, when we talk about man pre-fall, we're talking about Adam, a literal Adam, a uh, the the first man. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. I'm assuming you guys are too. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. So yeah, Adam, literal, literal Adam. A literal Adam is very important uh, for many, many reasons, up to and including uh, salvation. Literal old Adam, or little, excuse me, literal original Adam, literal new Adam. It's very important, as we'll soon see. So man is made. Well, how does how does Genesis describe this? Um, Zelman, do you have Genesis one twenty six and following handy there? Then God said. Let us make man in our in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them. All right, so now we talk about the big question, what is what is the image of God? What does that mean? That's a, that's a very, very rich term. It's a very common term in theology. So let's unpack that a little bit. So who wants the ball? Who wants to pick it up here? Yeah, I'll, this is just what I would kind of start off here. That it's so uh, common in theology because in the in the biblical account, anyways, this is the thing that is different about man, or it's how it's summarized there. Right? It doesn't. God doesn't say, "Let us give him a will." or let us give him a superior intellect. Although I think he has those things, the description that God uses, the words he uses here to say, what is it that's uh, different about this particular creature versus the others is this image of God. Just to see that that is the, why do we use that term uh, so often? And, and why do people refer to it so much? Well, because this is what the biblical record shows as the distinguishing feature of man. We're coming up on the next break. When we come back, we're going to define the image of God and really unpack that a little bit. We'll be right back with a word fitly spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. A word fitly spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all his fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. This is Word Fitly Spoken Podcast. Willie Zellman and David here, picking up right where we left off, talking about the image of God, a very significant term in church history and in biblical theology. So guys, what is the image of God? Yeah, the uh, If I can just kind of uh, pick at the word image there, uh, image and likeness are used 
oftentimes uh, to talk about idols, right? And so the carving of an image, uh, the carving of something in the likeness of uh, some other part of creation is prohibited in the commandments. Um, and then it's often that's just those those words become synonyms, idol, image, likeness, carving. Um, and so obviously that's not the sense that it's being, or maybe it is the sense that it's being used here, but it's playing off of that, right? Uh, man is uh, the image of God. He's He resembles God in some way. And uh, that's just the natural understanding of an image. And the question is, in what way does he resemble God? What, how is man like God? And I think that's really important to to ask because then you get a little bit later, like in Genesis 5, where we're told that Seth was born in the image and the likeness of Adam. So there's, after the fall, there's something that's lost in the image so that uh, Seth is not said to be born in God's image, but in the image of his father. Um, and so I think that's a, a helpful way of, of showing that, yeah, something is here in the original creation that has been, well, severely damaged and in fact destroyed. I mean, what would, where would you go with that, David? Yeah, I would, I would uh, definitely agree with that. And the, that reference in Genesis 5 is important to kind of draw this back into our, uh, this fourfold distinction in anthropology. Um, when we talk about that second state, we often just kind of refer to it as man in Adam or uh, the Lutherans often talk about the old Adam, but that's that's what we mean, uh, being in Adam's fallen image, in Adam's fallen likeness. If I can just kind of go back to uh, to the wording in Genesis, I think you you get a if you just if you just keep reading, you get a little bit of the definition for what image is, or you get some hint at it in what God tells Adam to do or he, he's not telling Adam at this point, but he says, let them have dominion over all these things. So there's, I think that dominion is a function of the image, but it's, I wouldn't say that that is the total definition for image here. Um, here I would, I would, and this is, this is not unique to me in any way. Um, but man is, man resembles God in that he, uh, reflects God's righteousness and his holiness, right? At, at least those two things. Yeah, and so and so Adam, in that sense, in the image of God, uh, is a perfect reflection of God's righteousness prior to the fall. Right. But but we, uh, being in the image of a fallen Adam, uh, no longer have that righteousness because, as as you said, with the fourfold distinction, we are not able to do anything other than sin prior to conversion. And that I mean, you you hear people often say, and it's. We can talk about this at a later point, but the, that we're still in the image of God, or all people are made in the image of God. And while I think I know what they mean, and I wouldn't contradict what's being said there, that every human life has dignity, I think that's what's being said. Um, it's actually truer to say we're all in Adam's image, right? We're all in the image and likeness of Adam. We no longer have, we no longer possess the righteousness, um, the true knowledge of God, and the holiness that Adam had in the beginning. Well said. And then with this as well, uh, with this original righteousness uh, having been lost, uh, when we move finally into, of course, the, the third state of man, the restoration, we have the beginning of that image being given back to us. I mean, would you agree, David, that it's not yet perfect in that third stage? The image is, is incomplete and that's why we still have the capacity to sin. Yeah. Well, if, okay. So if you're defining image of God as true knowledge, not just facts about God, but that right, true knowledge in almost as a synonym for faith there, trust, fear, love, and trust of God, righteousness and holiness, it's obviously true, or <laughs> at least I think it's evident, evidentially provable that we do not have perfect righteousness and holiness, except by faith, now by faith, someday by sight, right? And so that third, that distinction between third and fourth is the distinction between faith and uh, the fulfillment or the consummation of all things. Yeah, and I think it's also worth noting too, you'd mentioned knowledge in connection there. Um, knowledge, biblically speaking, is always connected with uh, doing. 
So this righteousness isn't just that we know God perfectly or, you know, that we know all these things about him, but also that Adam prior to the fall um, and also we in Christ are being are conformed to the image of God in that sense of we we share and do his righteousness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's, um, you know, these terms aren't don't appear in Genesis one righteousness, holiness knowledge that's not there image of god is just kind of dropped in out of no it seems to be out of nowhere right and it's it's almost like it's it's this big term and we're not going to tell you what it what it is right here <laughs> it's just this is the image of god right and and we all know what this means it's not further elaborated except through the further revelation of the scriptures right and so when we define it as true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, it's helpful to see, well, where where are you getting that from? We're getting it from later reflection on the rest of what God has revealed in Scripture. Yeah, and you get references uh, to this image again in the New Testament, where like in 2 Corinthians uh, 4, 4, Christ is called the image of God. Also, uh, Colossians 1, 15, you also have reference the image of the invisible God. So Christ being the the second Adam, the 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 new, well the the per, the the second Adam, the the perfect man, now for us, um, also bears that image again in a perfect way. Um, so we can see that because Christ was con, uh, conformed to the righteousness of God in that sense, uh, that He is bearing God's image in a way that we, well, would you say in a way that we never will? Though, yeah, I mean, Christ is. Yeah, this is where, well, okay, so I mentioned before, like, there's this, um, you could say the function, the functional image of God is that man has dominion, right? Man is going, and and if we keep reading, we're going to hear about be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So that is a function of possessing the image of God, right? That God is the mm-hmm. ultimate creator, and so man in the image of God is participates in procreation, right? Um, God is the ultimate authority over all these things. He order, he gives order to everything and man in his image subjects creation to the prop, to its proper order. I use, I know that's a pejorative term there, Zelwyn. So don't miss, <laughs> don't mishear me when I say subject, <laughs> putting them in good order. But okay, so that's a functional understanding of image of God. But you also, what you're bringing out is that Jesus has this possesses the image of God in a essential way, right? So he is the perfect image of the father. This is Hebrews language. He's the exact imprint of the father's character. And so that, that we will never be in that same way. It'll never be said of us that we are of one substance with the father. Right. Say every week about Jesus. Right. Well, and then you kind of also mentioned like, it's kind of going back to Genesis a little bit, uh, this idea of distinguishing between what you're calling a functional definition and maybe a more exact definition. You kind of get a little bit of this functional definition also a little bit later in, in Noah, uh, when uh, in nine in Genesis 9, 6, where it says that whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. So there is a sense in which broadly speaking, you know, very widely speaking, I don't know what exact term you want to use, man was created in the image of God. And this kind of gets a little bit back to what you were saying, you know, it's not exactly correct to say that we are all still prior to conversion, you know, made in the image of God, rather in the image of Adam. But there is something in which being in Adam, because he once had the image, um, that that, I don't know, where do you want to go with that? How do you want to take I, that? I think I, I would follow along with what you're saying there. It, you sound like you want to say the next step. Um, and and this is where, I mean, part of the the joy and maybe the challenge at the same time of, of reading the Bible and trying to remain faithful to the words that are used there and the terms that are used, um, you just, you end up not always speaking with exact clarity. And this is why systematic terms become really helpful to us, right? It, it helps to be able to define image of God more fully than is just recorded right here in this one little pericope. So yeah, uh, we all, like the Genesis passage you just mentioned in 9.6, does it mean that 
man once had the image Adam, and since we are all children of Adam, therefore we all continue to have special dignity because, in a sense, our forefather uh, had this special image that we don't we no longer possess. Or is it just speaking more generally speaking, like like I mentioned, most people do when they say, "Well, we're all in the image of God. Uh, every human life has dignity. Every human life is." should be protected. Yeah, and you do, and I mean, in that verse too, the, the word made here is spoken of in the past tense. So, I mean, the, the, the idea seems to be that because Adam cre- was created with the image of God, which he had at one time, and even though he no longer has it, even though his descendants like Seth are born in his image, just like we are prior to conversion, being part of the man of dust, to use the language of Paul, because he once bore the image, there is a dignity that's still accorded to yeah. that. Yeah. And okay, now here's here's where the systematic terms are really helpful too. Okay, so if we all if we can agree that we no longer have the image of God in the same way Adam did, we can also agree, I think, that we have the um and I know this we can clarify this in a minute, we all have the capacity to regain that image. Right? So what distinguishes us from from a monkey, for example? Well, a monkey will never bear the image of God. It doesn't have the capacity to. Now, there's other things that distinguish us, don't get me wrong, but we do have the this passive capacity for the image to be renewed. And that is a is a unique feature of humanity. Yeah, and I think I think Willie, you had mentioned this uh, once uh towards the beginning of the podcast, man is God's object of salvation, to use the technical language. God became man in order to save us. We are the his unique creation, also his unique, I don't know how to put it, focus of his attention. Sure, yeah. And, and that's the thing, uh, w- without taking away some of the other mystical aspects of salvation, the recreation of all things, and is Fido going to be in heaven? Uh, the th- the purpose of Jesus Christ coming into the world was to be a friend of sinners and to save them, and namely namely men. Um, that that is who Jesus Christ comes to save. The incarnation is about becoming man to save man. That's ultimately the focus of God's love, and uh, the the focus the focal point of salvation is uh, you know that that's what Christ is winning the salvation of man. And so when you talk about the capacity for the image of God, David, I think, I mean, you can add to this as well. Uh, What you mean by that is that because we are God's, you know, the ones that God has come to save, um, we are able in that sense, not that we can choose it, you know, only God can give it back to us, but we are able to bear that image once again, that we can actually be redeemed. Yeah, no, I I wouldn't add anything to that. I would say it just that way. (laughs) <laughs> Fair enough. Right. So so with, with that in mind, um, with our last few minutes here, let's talk a little bit about life, of the life of man before the fall. What was life like for Adam? What did it look like with, you know, with regard to, to his will and, and creation at large? You know, it was very different from this sinful world that, that we live in. Yeah. So I think um, going on with that, uh, Zelwyn had mentioned before this uh, understanding of knowledge, not just as uh, the intellectual understanding of things, but actually do- connecting knowing with doing. Um, so Adam is created and he he is actually willing to do what God wants him to do, right? He is, uh, to go to Augustine's terms, he has this power not to sin. And he actually, and he, and he, does that. And we don't know how long he did that for, right? We, there's no, there's various theories about how long it was before the fall actually occurred. And none of them, I don't know if, if one is better than another, you guys can, can chime in. Yeah. I mean, I mean, ultimately the Bible is silent on that, at least explicitly, but it's interesting that, so we, we certainly affirm that Adam has the capacity to not sin, obviously, and the capacity to sin. And he is influenced not internally. His negative influence comes from a source external. But nevertheless, it is something that has to move his will in order for him to make this decision. 
Um, there's something that causes him to sin, obviously his own responsibility, but there is an external force that tempts him, right. namely the serpent. And that's that's sort of where we get this distinction from, or this this idea that Adam had the capacity both to do good and to do evil, or, or and, and to sin, we'll say. And, and it's a capacity to do it. Adam did not have to sin of necessity. We cannot but sin. Everything we do is tainted by sin. But Adam is unique. Adam has the ability to be free from sin, and he fails in the face yeah. of temptation. And we, and we talk about it being Adam's sin, and this goes back to Adam, you know, man being unique, but Adam as an individual being unique as well. Because who actually grabs the fruit first? The forbidden fruit. Well, the woman actually takes the fruit because uh, she's the one deceived. Right. But who's who gets the blame? And whose fault is it? Is it truly? Well, it's Adam's, of course. Absolutely. But this is this is significant to our understanding of these issues of original sin and of the fourfold state of man and everything. Yeah, because we how do you want to put this? Original sin is not something that is just, uh, you know, my own individual, like, you know, I sin, you sin, we all sin kind of a thing. And we have our own individual guilt. But rather that because we are in Adam, uh, we have this collectiveness because Adam is our head uh, prior to conversion, right? Right. I mean, that's what you're getting at, right? Well, yeah, yeah, that he is, he stands in our stead. You know, we are um, in the in this way. When Adam falls, we're all sons of Adam. The sin of Adam is visited upon us, and we live with the consequences of that, and it's good and just and right because that is how the Bible reckons sin. Uh, specifically Adam's sin. We have our original sin and actual sin. So we commit our own sins too. It's not only original sin that damns us, although that is certainly sufficient. At the same time, um, our salvation works in much the same way. Jesus Christ, the new Adam, Jesus Christ, the King, Jesus Christ, our elder brother, stands in that stead, and we now become uh, children of God. Uh, We are restored um, in a way, uh, we are restored. Um, that image is, is given back to us uh, by virtue of Jesus Christ. But this idea that there is a head must be understood because if Adam's sin cannot be imputed to us, and there's all kinds of complications from that, or I mean implications in that, um, if Adam's sin cannot be imputed to us, how can Christ's righteousness be imputed to us? Right. And the the two places where you'd go to, I mean, you sound like uh, the Apostle Paul right there, because you're you're basically picking up what he's saying in uh, Romans 5. And then I think it's also in 1 Corinthians 15, right? This And especially there in 1 Corinthians, you have the discussion of bearing the image. So what you're talking about as in terms of head, a head and the uh, those who are connected to that head, Paul can talk about as just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of hev- of heaven. Right. And so that's why we, we spend all this time talking about original sin, nature of man and the image of God, because it is significant. I mean, these are, these are fundamental doctrines that we have to understand. I mean, otherwise we won't rightly understand the gospel. We won't rightly understand the person and work of Jesus Christ, ultimately. So it is, it is very very important here. That's why you have to have the literal Adam. For the same reason you have to have a real Jesus and a real Savior. We have a real father in Adam, a true earthly father, and we live as his descendants and suffering uh, really because of what Adam has done, because we live not in this original state with the power not to sin and the power to sin. We live in state number two, which is really the dominion of sin, where sin does reign. Absolutely. And I mean, and I mean, we as humanity in general, um, right. not we as Christians, because Christians get bumped up into bracket number three <laughs> um, as far as regeneration is concerned. But but humanity in general, we do live in a dominion of sin and under the dominion of sin in a very real way. Well, I was going to say this, this might even this might be uh, pushing things into uh, territory we don't want to go into right now. But the fact that Adam has the potential both to sin and not to sin, it should be something that we point out here. This first state, while it is described as very good, is not the perfected state, right? It's not the glorified, this is not- It's not the glorified yeah, state. This is Adam in, what do we always say? It's Adam in paradise, 
Um, it's very good, but I, but I also, I myself am prone to this too. They, we want to say that God's creation was, was perfect. Right. And it, and it was, there was nothing wrong with it. He, he himself says very good. Uh, and yet there was, there was something more for Adam to advance to. And unfortunately, uh, that's putting it lightly, uh, instead of advancing, he, he fell. Yeah. And this is, this is, a very difficult thing for us to understand as fallen creatures, as as creatures who live, you know, after Adam's sin, that first and that fourth state is something that we can only really speculate on because we don't know it. Right. I mean, experientially, we don't know it. And even just speculatively, it's hard for us to describe because we can't understand it because we don't understand a life apart from sin and real temptation. In the fourth state, you have the power uh, not to be able to sin, and you stay in that state of perfection forever. And that is not something that we can we can really understand until Jesus Christ returns in glory at the resurrection. Even then, you wonder, <laughs> you know, in paradise, will we really be able to fathom what's been done for us completely? But it's hard for us to view creation apart from sin because that is the that's what we live in the sinful world. And to fathom a time, either A, when before sin had entered the world, or a time when there will be no more sin, absolutely. And that is it's completely foreign to man. And it's hard even for the Christian to understand. We yearn for it because our new nature yearns for it. Our new nature is good. The new man in us yearns for that which is good and perfect and holy. And yet we really don't quite know it yet. Then we won't know it until that last day. Yeah, this is what uh, Zelwyn was asking about before and, and we were talking about before is like, okay, so the image has been restored in us as Christians, but is does that mean that it is it's it hasn't been perfected in us yet, right? And so if we try to say, well, I can maybe draw some analogy between my present ex, uh, my pre- my present experience as a Christian and I can maybe draw some kind of faint analogy back to what it what it might have been like for Adam in the garden. I think that you can maybe draw some faint analogy, but it's so faint that it it really pales, right? So we rejoice in in God's law, but not to the same degree. We still experience it as a as a difficult thing. But Adam, when he receives God's law, uh, the command, we're not going to get to it today, I don't think, but uh, when he receives this command not to eat, uh, you know, we, oh man, that seems so unfair, right? Why, why would God make the tree and then say that Adam can't eat from it? But I don't think Adam felt like, oh man, this is really an oppressive law. I can't do what I actually want to do. He wanted to do what God wanted him to do. Right. And that's because now... Man knows God naturally only through the law, that 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 innate sense of, of right and wrong. And Paul talks, of, you know, if you want to debate that, you're going to have to take it up with Paul. But Paul does certainly testify to this, that men knowing the good they ought to do, they don't do it. Well, that's I'm actually quoting from another part there. But initially, you know, he's talking about that natural knowledge of God, which leads only to condemnation because men become a law unto themselves. But the vestiges that we have of paradise are knowing good from evil and knowing what we ought to do and not doing it. And man suppresses his knowledge of the law of God, and that condemns him because man is, a, is by nature a lawbreaker. So that's, that's, that's the only sense in which we have yearning. Everybody in the world cries out for some sort of justice, especially in the face of, of, of objective evil. You know, people will call, will call it for some sort of justice, or certainly if they're personally wrong. You know, you look at the people's court, you know, everybody has that sense of I shouldn't be stolen from or I shouldn't be wronged or that sort of thing. That's really the last vestige that we have, the natural man has, of uh, that, that original uh, um, righteousness possessed in the garden. Just this sense of, of, the, of the law of God. But that law is not sufficient to save. That law is only sufficient to condemn and uh, to reveal, really, it reveals sin, and then it condemns us in our own sin. But but that but not, that nevertheless is something that that man has, which is a very interesting thing. Uh, this concept of right and wrong, this concept of uh, of justice. Now it too is tainted by sin because our you know I'm using the word justice, and that's a completely loaded term. I absolutely recognize that. 
So I'm using it in the most generic way that I can, people. Please don't, uh, please don't misunderstand me here. But that nevertheless is where we live. And that's, that's the state that, we, that natural man finds himself in. Would you agree with that as far as man, as far as a natural revelation goes? Yeah. Yeah. And see how, see how helpful it is to have this fourfold distinction here to even be able to talk about um, an understanding of justice in our fallen state. We have a perverted view of justice in our renewed state. We have a a renewed (laughs) sense of justice, but even that renewal is an incomplete yeah, natural man, as far as justice goes, it's like the opening scene of The Godfather where no Sicilian can refuse a request on the day of his daughter's wedding. So everybody's coming to Don Corleone with these requests. And the man, his daughter is assaulted and her face is disfigured. And he wants Don Corleone to have these men who did it killed. And Don Corleone says, no, that's not justice. That's vengeance that you want. But we often find ourselves like the like the guy petitioning Don Corleone, Right. We don't really want justice, but but sin has so perverted our sense of justice that often what we're asking for is some sort of vengeance or some sort of earthly sinful vengeance that goes beyond uh, true true righteous justice. And uh, check out Godfather, folks. It's available on Netflix <laughs> as of right now. So if you haven't seen it, you know, rectify that. But <laughs> but it is very true. So so guys, any any final thoughts before we wrap up here? Well, maybe just to kind of. You know, since we've been talking about justice and and talking about what we still have in Adam, maybe it's worth pointing out that in this this restored state of ours, in this third state, uh, when we have the restoration of the image, we have to remember that that restoration of the image is Christ. This is right. not a not something that we just. It's not something that we're just given again and we have all on our own like Adam had, but rather that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Uh, Christ is our image because he is the image of the Father. And so when we have, however faintly we might have it and however imperfectly in this life because of sin, uh, we still have that uh, through Jesus. Amen. And only through Jesus. Well, you're listening to, and this has been the Word Fitly Spoken podcast. If you like what you hear, find out more at wordfitlyspoken.org. Check us out at facebook.com, Facebook slash wordfitly, or follow us on Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi and David Apple. God love you, and God bless.